Well, good morning to you. Let's uh, thank the Lord for our time once again. Father, we're so grateful for the, uh, your faithfulness that we're made aware of fresh and anew every day that we wake up. Thank you for the grace of life. Um, thank you for the knowledge that we are justified. We stand justified before you, not because of our works or anything about us, but because of the work of Christ on the cross. Thank you that we have the assurance even now that our sins will not be counted against us and that we, there's no condemnation because we're in Christ. And uh, Lord, do we just uh, all the blessings that go with that are beyond our comprehension and ability to articulate. So we thank you for each and every one. Thank you for your word now. Pray you bless our time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're looking at characteristics of an effective leader. Uh, what are the marks that really need to, to mark your life so that you are an effective leader and, and effectively influencing others? And I mentioned to you last night that influence is a great synonym for leadership because uh, that's what you're trying to accomplish. You, won't, you don't want to just impress people with who you are. You're wanting to influence your wife. You're wanting to influence your children. You're wanting to influence uh, others in the church toward godliness. And those first two marks, just to review, were concern and character. Uh, Paul exemplifies this in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, his love for the people there that God had put in his charge. He, he was genuine in that. It was not uh, something insincere. He genuinely cared about them. He was willing to sacrifice his own life for them, really. But if you think about it beyond the subject of leadership, when you start talking about love, Christ told his disciples in that uh, upper room uh, time that he had with them before he was crucified, he told his disciples that this is something that should mark all of his believers, all of his followers. How does the world know that we're disciples of Christ? He didn't say, this is how the world will know you're my disciples, that you have, uh, you know, uh, you're really busy in church, or that you've got all your, your, your uh, you know, T's crossed and your I's dotted theologically. No, all those things are important. But he says, the world will know you're my disciples because of your love for one another, Love for other Christians. So as leaders, certainly we are to model that for our families, model that for the church, because they're all required to exemplify that. What about godly character? Is it just men that should exemplify godly character? Of course not. My wife is a, is a wonderful godly woman, and she manifests character and godliness. And uh, many people in my church obviously understand the, the importance of that, just as you do. But yet we as men are called upon by God to, to set the standard for it, to model it for everyone so that our wives understand what God in this looks like in every area and character. Paul models that for us. Well, we want to look at two final characteristics this morning of, of an effective spiritual leader. The third one is also found in this passage that we're studying, 1 Corinthians 4, 14 to 21, and it's the characteristic courage. Courage. Really, courage is even a, a primary characteristic of manliness. Hold your place. Turn to the right. First Corinthians chapter 16. If you're having trouble finding it, it's right after First Corinthians chapter 15. And right before First Corinthians chapter 17. Maybe that'll help you. No, no 17. First Corinthians 16, verse 13. You've got a... Uh, uh, a verse there that's uh, pretty much a, a verse that's, that's in your face, uh, we'd say. And it says there to be on the alert, uh, stand firm in the faith, 
And different translations say it different ways, but it, but it says, act like men and be strong. What a, what a great thing to, for Paul to tell these people. Act like men. Well, I'll tell you why it can be translated that way and why it can also be translated this way. Be brave. This Greek could be translated that way. Be brave. Be courageous. Why can it be translated either one? Because there's an understanding in Scripture that uh, bravery or courage and, and being manly, they, they go together. Uh, God expects men to be men and to be brave. There's a familiar passage to you in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. And the Hebrew there is translated into the Greek for the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same Greek word here where Joshua says in verse 9, Be strong and courageous. Courageous. Act like men. Be brave. Be courageous. Listen, this is part of what it means to be manly. And so it's certainly part of what it means to be an effective leader. Well, just some general comments about courage. Courage ultimately means... Something like this, on one hand, it means a willingness to pay the price for truth. That's courage. A willingness to pay the price for truth. In other words, you take whatever comes your way, but you never compromise what is right. Someone who manifests this kind of courage chooses to do what is right to do because it is right to do. It doesn't matter what the results might be. You do what's right to do because it's right to do. So on one hand, courage is a willingness to pay the price for truth. And I could say it negatively because many times when we think of courage, we think of something like this. Well, courage is the opposite of being fearful. No, it's not the opposite of being fearful. And it's not the absence of fear. That's not courage. You may have a good dose of healthy fear, but you're willing to do what's right anyway. And willing to do it without compromising truth in any way. So courage is characterized by that. Courage is characterized by action. By action. There's motion in your life. You're going into territory you've never gone before, possibly, as you experience life and live in this world. You could say it this way. Courage, which is hand in hand with leadership, is not just maintaining status quo. In things. That's not necessarily leadership. That's more something like management. Leadership is not just maintaining status quo. Inherent in leadership is the understanding that at times we take risks. We take risks to improve. We take risks to, to grow. And courage says, I'm willing to take that risk and I'm willing to pay the price for what is right to do because it's right to do. I will not compromise truth. There could be a healthy level of fear in that, but I do it anyway. And I'm not just going to sit. There's steps to take. There's action. There's motion. Well, if you live your life that way, it sounds like there's going to be times where, because there's risk, you could get hurt. Yeah, you could. There's an awareness of that. But true masculinity doesn't back off because of that. Masculine men are going to... Realize there are times there's pain. We cannot allow ourselves to be programmed to fear getting hurt. There's a willingness to stand up and tell the truth. And I really believe God 
in a sense, you know, metaphorically, is looking for men, looking for men who are who have the guts. We could say it that way, you know, the fortitude, the the guts to put themselves on the line for truth, put themselves on the line for what is right, and trust that He's going to take care of you. If that night ignites something in your heart, you want to be that kind of man. Then let's talk about the presidential election four years from now, because we might want to get behind you if you're going to be that kind of leader that you're willing to pay the price. For what's right, regardless of what the consequences are. Well, those are just some general thoughts about courage. How is any of this manifested in the Apostle Paul here? Well, maybe not in such overt ways that you're seeing this manly man, you know, courageously setting off, you know, down a path with people trying to catch up with him. But you see it in some ways like this. It's manifested, and it will be in your life. And my life, it's manifested in the willingness to show initiative to solve problems. Leaders are problem solvers. Leaders have the courage to show the initiative, to see something that's wrong, and address it and take whatever steps are necessary to deal with it and to resolve it. They're not passive. There's action. There's motion. There's not fear that confines you to where you don't take risk or you don't take action, there's courage that helps you overcome that and do it anyway. Paul here shows initiative. He is a problem solver. He's dealing with these problems in Corinth for four chapters now. And look at the various things he does. He says in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you. That's put in a negative statement. I do not write these things to shame you. But you could take the nod out and realize he's also saying, I am writing you. I'm writing you this letter. I'm doing this because I've got to address these problems. I'm not going to just ignore them. I write you. Verse 17. For this reason, I've sent you Timothy. Here's another step. He takes the initiative to to deal with these problems. I'm sending Timothy. Verse 19. We'll see this in a moment this morning. We also know this. I will come to you. I'll write to you. I'll send Timothy. I'll come there myself. I, we could say it, he is a problem solver. It is not unspiritual for a man to be aggressive. I know there's teaching that is sometimes necessary. And some of what I said even last night would be in this category. Teaching that is to to help men be careful to not be brutish and, and unloving and arrogant and just launching out and doing something unwisely. Yes, we need that balance. And our genuine concern and love for the people that we're leading will help us with that. But let's don't go too far with it. Let's don't turn men into something that's not manly. It's not unspiritual for a man to be aggressive. In fact, men need to be aggressive. And I want you to understand, I'm not talking about personality here. A man can be a quiet, reserved individual who's an effective leader. Because he's willing to show initiative to resolve problems that he sees. So yes, there's an aggressiveness. Sensitivity and gentleness and vulnerability and those kind of things. Yes, those are good traits. But let's don't take those qualities and elevate them to the point above aggressiveness and boldness. Because then we're not being masculine anymore. Leaders are aggressive problem solvers. So to be manly, you seek solutions to things. You see issues, and you don't just complain about them. You see issues, and you don't just fret and worry about them. 
You see issues, you recognize what they are, and you take steps to resolve them. Whether it's in your family, issues with your children, your finances, your home, whatever it might be. You see the issues instead of backing off and and just wringing your hands. What can I do about it? I need to find a solution. Issues in the church. I, I love to find people who don't just come to me and sit down with me. I just want to tell you something I think is wrong. Well, don't just do that. I know some things that are wrong, too. Come to me and say, you know, I've observed this and I think it's wrong, but you know what? I've been thinking and praying about it. I think here's something we could do that I think would help resolve this. What do you think about that? I'm going, man, that sounds great. All in favor, say aye. You're in charge. Let's go. You know, what a wonderful help you are. The church. Hey, the world. I know that one person can't change the world, but boy, you see the world you live in. You see what's around you. You see issues. And what can I do? What steps can I take? A true man doesn't run from problems. I mean, Paul, listen, plenty of problems in this church. Run from them. You know, wipe the dust off your feet and go on somewhere else. Listen, he says, I'm not giving up on this. I'm writing you this letter. I'm going to send you Timothy. I'll come there myself. I care about you. That's why. A true man doesn't run from problems. A true man doesn't run from controversies. A true man doesn't run from difficult situations. He sizes them up and then he attacks it. He shows initiative by taking the responsibility and even mobilizing others to help. Again, he says, I'm sending Timothy. You mobilize others and you you enable them to help with the task. A leader, once he knows what must be done to solve a problem, or once he knows what is necessary to meet a certain challenge, he's determined to do what he believes is right. And then he'll take specific plans. Uh, He'll make specific plans. He'll take specific steps in that direction. He's aggressive. If you state it negatively, the other side of the coin, a leader is not passive. He's not passive. And you're determined no matter how difficult the obstacles are before you. Turn again to 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, this is a great little verse in 1 Corinthians 6. He's, as he wraps up the book here, he is laying out what his plans are and, and what he's hoping to do and where he's hoping to go. He says in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 5, but I'll come to you after I go through Macedonia and uh, perhaps I'll stay with you and spend the winter there. Uh, Verse 8, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? Verse 9, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me. Now that sounds exciting. Let's put a period there in the verse and go, well, no wonder he wants to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because there's great opportunity. There's a wide door for effective service. Man, I want that for my life. There's not a period there, though, in English. There's a comma. And there are many adversaries. Well, Paul, if there's many adversaries, why are you so excited to stay in Ephesus? Listen, the obstacles and the adversaries, we're not going to throw him off. And he's honest. He's a realist. He understands. Yeah, it's, it's, there's some difficult things going on there. There's even adversaries. There's people who oppose me there. So I'm looking forward to staying in Ephesus and being used by the Lord. Great opportunity for the ministry there. Determined no matter what the obstacles are. If you're a father here today, let's apply to the home. Are you willing to show initiative to get personally involved in solving problems? 
personally involved in the things that, that come up in the family, that come up in the house. A lot of men consistently punt to their wife. They punt. So ask yourself, does, does your wife show more initiative in meeting challenges than come, that come up than you do? Does she show more initiative in meeting challenges with the finances, for example? More initiative in showing, uh, in showing initiative to meet problems head-on that are dealing with the children. Frankly, just the things that need to get done around the house. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to wives in counseling in different situations like that where one of the complaints is the things that need to get done and they need to get done and they need to get done, they're just never done. She has a list of things that need to get done. And come, the point comes where she's starting to work on those things to try to, to fix them. Here's a husband that just punts to that. Goes to work, comes home, thinks it's now time to, to vegetate. I put in my hours. And how many of our wives work more like 24-7 all the time, taking care of things? Don't punt. Understand that, no, to be manly means, okay, let me have what the problems are. Sometimes we don't even want to hear them. Got enough things to deal with about deal with in my life. Listen, being manly says, okay, it's my responsibility. Tell me what needs to get done. What's going on with our children? What's your concern? All right, I'll deal with it. I'll take care of it. Boy, what a ministry that is to a wife. I mean, it's not that she doesn't have skill in those areas. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a, a wife fulfilling her duties in the home. And she may have more skill in the area of finances, for example. And, and she understands that better. And she can take care of those things. And she's organized or whatever. That's wonderful. She's a part of your team. And you utilize her giftedness. But ultimately, that does not relieve you and me of, of the responsibility of being the leader in the home. To show the initiative. To know what's going on. The one who shows the determination and the courage so that the end result is that she is putting her gifts at your disposal as a member of your team. This is initiative. It's courageous initiative. It goes hand in hand, I guess, with another word, uh, duty, a sense of duty. See, a leader lives with this sense of duty, and that's, a, that's another good word, duty. It's an understanding of, of your role in the family, of your role in the church, your, your role in the world. It's an understanding of your duty to be the spiritual leader that God's called you and me to be. Again, I'm afraid in some cases we've gone too far in even teaching our, our sons, perhaps, and what it means to be understanding and kind and sensitive. We, we teach them those things. But at the same time, we've also got to model for them and teach them what it means to be a man. Son, to be a man means to show courage. You see a problem, you don't run from it. You see a problem, you don't get depressed about it. You see a problem, you don't get anxious and fret about it. You see a problem, you take some steps to evaluate it and pray about it and determine what's the best thing to do and take steps that direction to resolve it. That's being manly. Son, I want you to be a man who's courageous. There's a sense of determination that goes with this duty so that you're determined aggressive, though loving, leader. So it's, it's manifested in showing initiative. Uh, this sense of duty or this manliness means accepting responsibility then. I have responsibility for those that God has given me, a responsibility for the care of my wife, a responsibility for my, my children. 
I have a responsibility to lead out in teaching my children what authority means and what submission to authority means and what respect means. I mean, look at the church. And I'm not saying this is necessarily bad, but the church across the board, uh, just in history, when it comes to Sunday school and things like that, uh, who carries most of the load in teaching children Sunday school teachers? A lot of times the mindset is, well, yeah, you know, the ladies in the church can, can teach the young children. I tell you, one of the things that encouraged me so much when I first moved to California to become a part of Grace Church was how many men were involved in children's programs and children's Sunday school. And I didn't come from that environment. I came from a normal kind of, unfortunately, church environment where, you know, the, uh, the, you got a church function and the, and the men are kind of all together, you know, talking about their car or, or something, you know, and the ladies are all over there talking about some books they're reading and, you know, some verses, you know, that they're studying. And, and you look at that and you go, wow, wow what a dichotomy that the, the, the women seem to be more spiritually minded. When it came to getting things done in the church, it was the, the, the women who were organized and the, the women who were taking steps. And, man, they were getting together, you know, monthly and studying missions and missionaries and things like that. And, and thank God for that. I mean, thank God for godly women who, who um, pour their lives into things that are spiritual. So I don't want to take that away from them. But, boy, what a blessing it was to get in a, an environment where I saw men teaching Sunday school, children, serving in children's ministry and things like that. Listen, we need that. We can't just punt the training of our children to, 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 to women. There's this ever-increasing, it seems, feminization of boys going on in our world. So we do need manly men in schools and churches and Sunday school classes. We especially need them in our homes. We need men who are willing to abandon preoccupations with self, preoccupations with personal pleasure, and are willing to do what's right to act in the best interest of their wife or their children. <clears throat> this is a quote. I don't even know who said it. I read it in some book somewhere, but they said this. Real men don't just beget babies. Real men take responsibility for them. For their care, physical, and spiritual care. Again, the balance is not unwisely. I mean, all these principles work together. See, concern and genuine love for them. Graciousness. So in no way am I presenting something that is a, a mindless sort of, uh, you know, unbalanced aggressiveness, but a healthy, a self-composed or controlled, a, a gracious, a wise aggressiveness. When that's the response needed to protect others, to lead others, to help others, to solve problems. That's what we need to teach our sons, that delicate balance of being careful, being wise. And being aggressive. So when it comes to problem, a leader doesn't run from problems. And if he's in the middle of problems, he doesn't quit. He doesn't quit in the middle of the challenge, especially if it's a difficult problem. Masculinity is associated with, with strength. Jump to verse 21 in our passage. You'll see that Paul was even willing to go there and manifest some authority if that's what was necessary. Verse 21, he says, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The rod here is, doesn't mean literally he's going to come with a stick and start beating people in the church. It's, it's symbolic of authority and severity, symbolic of discipline, if that's what was necessary. 
rebuke if that's what's necessary. He says, I'm willing to come there. I'm not going to shirk this responsibility. I'm not going to back off. If this is what is necessary, I will come with that kind of sternness and that kind of authority. It's up to you. If you're still being rebellious, then that's what's going to be necessary. I'm not going to shirk my duty to carry it out the discipline if that's what the situation is called for. Of course, he exemplifies this wonderful balance. He knows that there's a place for not just being an authoritarian, but for showing grace. And I really have a sense in my own heart that I think Paul would much prefer one versus the other. I don't think he's like drooling. I can't wait to get there and, and with a rod. I think he'd much rather come in a spirit of grace and, and tenderness, he says. Come in love, exercising that parental affection. Hey, I'm that way as a father. I'd much rather sit down with one of my children, especially when they were younger. I'd much rather sit down with them and, and just have a gracious discussion and point out, no, this is what's wrong. This is what you, you need to do. I'd much rather have that and, and hear a, yes, Dad, that's what I'll do. I'd love that every time. I didn't like dealing with problems, per se. It wasn't something I just lived for. No, there's a, there's a burden you have to have to deal with problems like that, but you're willing to do it. Because it means being manly. So yeah, Paul says, I'll come. The choice is up to you. First approach with people, certainly patience, tenderness, grace, mercy. Jesus taught his disciples to foster that spirit of gentleness. He said of himself, I am gentle. I am humble of heart in Matthew chapter 11. But some things require something different. At times, a leader must show that initiative to deal courageously and even severely with wrongdoing. A good example of that would be in the family. That's certainly true in the home. A father can't shirk his responsibilities to literally bring the rod, literally, when it's necessary. Listen, I talk to a lot of young parents that just can't make themselves be obedient to what Scripture says and to, and to deal with disobedience in their young children in the way the Bible outlines because it makes them feel uncomfortable, and I really don't like that, and my child's not going to like me now, and, and I'm not sure it's a good thing, because I read some reports in the newspapers, and you know they've done some research of prisoners in prison that they were all spanked when they were little, so it probably causes murder and some other things. I don't know, I'm just thinking through all that. You don't have to think through it. God's laid it out for you in Proverbs. It's necessary at times. Again, as a father, especially a young father learning to do that, it, it broke my heart to have to do things like that. So why do it? Because it's right to do. Yeah, but you know, my child doesn't respond to it. See, now we're making our decisions based upon potential results. A man says, this is what's right. Can't compromise truth. I'm willing to take that responsibility and do what's necessary. In the home... Of course, if that's all he ever does, he's missing out on opportunities to teach children what God's grace looks like. Of course, we have to teach our children what, that God is gracious and, and how he shows grace and mercy. And boy, what a wonderful but yet delicate balance it is to teach your children both sides of God there. He's not just one of those. He's both. He's holy. He's just. But he's gracious and he's good and, and merciful. So it takes a lot of discernment. Seeking the Lord in prayer. Lord, help me be this kind of man that is going to see problems and not shirk the responsibility to sense this duty and show the initiative to do what's right because it's right to do. And take some steps so my wife can see that and go, 
man, my husband is... He's a man. He's acting like a man. That's what she wants. She's a godly woman. She desires that. So you have to seek the Lord for discernment and balance. Wisely evaluating each situation in order to handle it the right way. You know, one of my favorite stories about Spurgeon is when his father spanked him one time. Spurgeon was quite a, uh, an interesting little boy. Uh, you may have heard some of these stories. Everybody likes to have a favorite story about Spurgeon or quote or something. There was one time when he was about five years old that he saw one of his father's deacons in a bar in town. And as a five-year-old, walked into that bar and confronted this deacon. You know, for his life, you know, be ashamed of yourself, a deacon in the church, you know, in here carousing, etc. Spurgeon didn't actually come to Christ and was not converted until he was about 16. But as a young boy, he knew the Bible, he knew Bible verses and all that kind of stuff. He was a little bit mischievous also. Spent a lot of time being raised by his grandparents, but he was in his father's church one time. His father was preaching and leading the music. And uh, Spurgeon told this story that uh, he was... While the hymn singing was going on, that Spurgeon, as a, I don't know if he was eight or nine, somewhere in there, intentionally was singing the wrong verses of the hymns out loud to throw everything off. His father, leading the music, kept giving him the evil eye, you know, while this was going on. And so while they're on verse three, he'd intentionally sing verse five or something like that, you know. And so his father pulled him aside and said, when this service is over, I'm going to give you a spanking you will never forget. Well, that sobered him up, and he spent the rest of the service kind of thinking about what was going to happen at the end of the service. And uh, after his father greeted people and all that kind of stuff, went and found young Spurgeon and said, I told you, let's go. So he started out in the woods through a field to go out in the woods for his father to take care of this. But by that point, the preaching of the word had really convicted this young boy, and he realized how wrong he was and everything else. And he, he was in tears and, and, and genuinely repenting and uh, and they got out there and they sat there in a log or something out there in the woods. And his father had this wonderful window of opportunity to, um, to talk with his young son about the condition of his heart and what produces that kind of behavior. And T- Spurgeon, it was one of those teachable moments as a father with a son. But when it was over, the father said, well, but I, I need to fulfill what I told you I was going to do. Because I wouldn't love you if I didn't. That I'll give you that spanking you'll never forget. And he went over and broke off in the little field there, broke off a stalk of wheat off the top and came back over and took his hand and took that wheat and hit the back of his hand with that stalk of wheat. And Spurgeon says, it was a spanking I never forgot. You know. Why? Why does father take that approach in that moment? Because it was the kind of moment that through discernment, his father determined that, you know what, it's, I wanted to teach him something about what it means for God to be a gracious and merciful God. Because that's who he is as well. You've got to pray for that kind of discernment. Pray for that kind of balance. Pray for the ability to wisely evaluate every situation. Not always rebuking. Not using discipline in every situation. But at the same time, not afraid to. If that's what's required. It takes work. It takes mental effort. It takes time. It takes prayer. Uh, my experience tells me as I work with young parents that... That's not the approach they really want to take. Work, time, effort, prayer, and agony. What they're really looking for is an easy-to-follow formula for parenting that doesn't require them to think. The attitude is, a lot of times, well, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Okay. Listen, I want to teach you how to evaluate this. I want to teach you how to think through Scripture and how to apply it to that situation. That's better. Men, we ought to set the example of that in our lives. 
when something is going wrong at home, challenge facing the family, when it's a decision that needs to be made, you courageously lead out, you put whatever time and effort into the situation that's necessary to make the wisest decision you can, but you make sure your courage is always balanced with that spirit of gentleness. So yeah, it's, it's manifested in showing initiative. I want to add one more thought to that. It's manifested then in being decisive. Being decisive, that's related to this. Being manly means being willing to make a decision. Courage plays a role in decision making because you can easily be afraid of making a decision until you're absolutely convinced it's the absolute most perfect decision that can ever be made in that situation. If you live that way, continually procrastinating, 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 making a decision, then those around you who are waiting for it become paralyzed. I'm not saying be rash. You need the data, whatever you can get, but once you have it, you've got to make a decision and you've got to go with it. So you do seek to have knowledge. Listen, a leader tries to have knowledge. He wants to study. He'll get counsel. He'll seek help from God in prayer. He'll ask questions. He'll measure the options. He'll gather the facts. He'll study what biblical principles are involved. Again, counsel. Do you know a leader is the one who has the information? Just a sidebar there. Leaders have information. People follow those who have information. And a lot of that comes from experience. I've never been in the military. Some of you probably have. But I would guess that this is true, that if you're in battle and you have the choice of following someone that's experienced and has the knowledge and information or following someone who doesn't, I think you'd want to follow the one who does. There's a sense of trust you have in them. So a leader and being manly, I think, is inherent. What's inherent in that is then get the information. And then you have to make decisions. You can't wait for the absolute perfect decision in every situation. You make the wisest decision you know to make with the Lord's help. Another little sidebar. I don't, I'm not advocating making decisions on everything in the world, at home especially. Don't make decisions on every little thing that doesn't matter. I counseled with a, a couple one time that the, the wife was so frustrated. The husband ruled everything. He determined where every picture would go on the wall of the house. He determined how the kitchen would be organized, what drawers the spoons and forks would go on, what shelves, you know, the, 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 the place and the saucer would go on, all that kind of stuff. And I'm hearing this, that this man controlled all of that. I'm going, you are... I think the Greek is uh, idiot. Um, Moronomai, I think, is the, uh, the Greek form. Uh, it's like, stay out of that kitchen. <laughs> Let your wife design it the way she wants. There was another husband. I remember the wife was so frustrated. She wanted to turn her house into something that was just something that she loved and and he decided that, you know what, no, this is an investment. We're not doing anything to this house that would uh, depreciate the value. So nothing is to be hang, hung on any wall anywhere in the house. No holes, no nothing on any wall. And just living in this sterile environment. So, I mean, yeah, you can micromanage things where you're kind of going far past what we're talking about here, making the decisions. Don't make decisions on every little thing. You've got to allow freedom for others to choose and fail even. As your children get older, you even have to allow them to make decisions, even suffer the consequences of those decisions. It's part of the learning process. You can't micromanage everything. But you do have to be a decision maker. And being decisive does require knowledge. And that's related to this thought. Your decisions then are 
are to be something that's controlled by principles and convictions. A truly godly, masculine man makes decisions out of principles that control his life, convictions that don't change. His belief system system is set. He studied the Word of God and he, and he knows what he believes. That's convictions. A real man isn't wishy-washy. He's not wishy-washy when he comes to believe when it comes to believing what is right and wrong. He's thought through the truth. He's determined what his non-negotiable principles are that guide his life. And he doesn't violate those convictions when he makes choices. Now believe me, he's ever testing those convictions by Scripture though. Because we can develop some convictions that are not necessarily biblically sound and live by them. So he's always willing to test those convictions by Scripture. But he has non-negotiables of his life that he does not violate because he's a man. Is a leader. So know what you believe and courageously make decisions through the grid of those convictions. So, concern, character, courage, one final word. It may be a surprise to you if we're going to talk about leadership. And I'm not saying that this chapter sums up everything that you could possibly ever want to know about leadership. I'm just saying these four keys, these four marks do come out here. The fourth one is this contentment. Contentment. Well, how does that relate to being a leader? I hope to tell you. Verses 18 and 19. Now, Paul was glad to send Timothy. He was glad to send his most trusted and student to teach and counsel them. But sending Timothy was not to be interpreted that Paul was unwilling or fearful, afraid about coming himself. So he says in verse 18, after he says, I'm sending you Timothy, in verse 18 he says, Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Evidently, some of those in Corinth who opposed Paul were accusing him of being wishy-washy and and fearful and and uncommitted, that he wasn't going to come. In fact, they were possibly going to interpret of him, him sending Timothy as proof of that, that instead of coming himself, yeah, look what he's doing. He's going to send Timothy to do the dirty work. They would criticize Paul for anything they could find sometimes. So he says, I I want you to understand, my sending Timothy is not to be considered as an indication that I myself am unwilling to come. And some in their pride and their confidence evidently were supposing that. I mean, there were false teachers in Corinth who were always trying to undermine Paul's authority. They questioned his apostleship. They accused him of lightness and instability because he just preached the cross and he didn't listen to the wisdom of the world. It was more profound. Yeah, they accused him of shallowness. They represented Paul sometimes as a weak person, somebody contemptible in speech. They accused him of not being caring, accused him of not following through with what he would say he would do and and therefore not returning to Corinth. But all this criticism did not defeat Paul. It didn't cause him to shrink back from what he saw as a responsibility. He was determined to go there to deal with the problems in person. And he literally made plans to do it. Plans to go. His sending Timothy was not running away from responsibility. So get this in your mind. An aggressive Paul, a willingness to show initiative. He's a manly man. I'll come there. I'll deal with it. I've made my plans. Don't worry. I will come to you, verse 19 says. But look what he adds. If the Lord wills. He qualifies his determination with this statement. 
And ultimately, I'm submitting to you, that is a statement of contentment. A statement of contentment. And that kind of contentment comes from only one thing. And it is a deep sense of trust in God. Paul manifests this deep sense of trust in God. After he made his plans, and as he with determination went about reaching these objectives, Paul was continually conscious of something. It was this fact that whatever God does, whatever God allows for his life is what's best. Therefore, Paul was willing to defer. And he's deferring here to the sovereign providential dealings of God in his life. Paul is saying that, you know, my movements are regulated. My movements are regulated by the Lord. I understand the sovereignty of God and I'm willing to acquiesce to it in my life. There are churches I could talk about this subject and I would be considered very suspicious and it would negate everything else I would have said. So grateful that's not true of you. I can boldly proclaim this is one of the crucial doctrines of the Bible, the sovereignty of God. Isn't it amazing how many people hate this doctrine? They hate the idea of God's sovereignty. They hate the implication of of God's sovereignty. But it is a crucial doctrine in the Bible. It is a pervasive doctrine in the Bible. Everything is about my ministry, my life, everything who we are. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God touches on that. Paul didn't run from this great doctrine. And there's already been some allusions, really, to the sovereignty of God in this text. Look back at verse 15. He says, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, in other words, Paul is understanding that it's only in Christ that I have had a spiritual effect on you. He says, yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I became your father. He knew it wasn't something about his own skills that was affecting these people. He's proclaiming something about the sovereignty of God right there. The effect that happened with the spread of the gospel in that town was due to the sovereign work of God, not Paul's ability to conjure up and manipulate people into believing. God did it. It was only because he was in Christ. All the glory goes to God. He also says this, it's through the gospel, verse 15. I became your father through the gospel. Once again, Paul is showing that he's not trusting his own opinions and own message, his own power, his own skill. He was confident that the gospel had inherent power and that God would sovereignly work out his perfect will in this town, in the lives of his people. But now he's stating something more directly in verse 19. He's saying basically this. I am content to live my life in submission to what Christ wants to do in my life. Yes, I'm going to make my plans. Yes, I'm determined. But at the end of the day, it's if the Lord wills. That's what I want. Listen, we're to live our lives with that attitude. We're to pray with that attitude. We make our petitions known to the Lord, but we pray with this sense of understanding that, listen, what God does, what you want to do, Lord, is what's best. That's really what I want. Yes, I'm unloading the burden of my heart here, but Lord, your will be done. Christ did that in the garden. He prayed, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, what? Your will be done. Your will be done. God is a sovereign God. Everything He does is exactly right, exactly just, and always good. That's who He is. I don't have to wonder about that. God is sovereign, and He's good. God is sovereign, and He's just. It's if the Lord wills. That was the characteristic of Paul's outlook and his acceptance of the authority of the overruling power of the Lord in his life. There's other verses that touch on that same subject. Look again to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. In that final chapter that we've looked at several times here, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7. I told you he was making his plans. I'm going to go to Macedonia. I'm going to go through there. I'm going to go to Ephesus. But look what he says in verse 7. I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. What does James 4 say in that regard? James 4, verses 13 to 15. We make our plans. We say that we're going to go to such and such a city. This is what we're going to do. James says we should say what? I'm going to go to such and such a city if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. We're not deist. That God just somehow threw all this into, into being and then stepped away and now it's, everything's kind of running itself. We believe in the transcendence of God. That He is far beyond our comprehension. His thoughts and ways are higher than our thoughts and ways. We can't know Him completely in the very essence of His being. But He's also imminent. He's condescended to us. He intimately cares for us. He's intimately involved in each of our lives. I don't have to understand how those two all fit together. It's just true. He's intimately involved. He's the Creator God, but He's also Emmanuel, God with us. And Paul knew that God was intimately involved every step of his life all along the way. It's the recognition of the providential and the spiritual government of Christ. In other words, Paul was willing to make his plans. Think of it this way. He was determined to write down his plans and then willing to ultimately give those to the divine editor. And Lord, you edit these plans any way you want. Because whatever you want for my life is what's best. This is an incredible illustration of submission here. That Paul was willing to submit to Christ and trust Him at all times. And you know what happens? How that manifests in your life when you submit to the Lord's providential workings and you believe He's sovereign and you're willing to defer to Him and you trust Him? One of the most important doctrines for our lives to trust God. You know what kind of person you'll be? A contented person. You will live in this world with its apparent chaos, though it's not in chaos from God's vantage point. I know you know this, but there are many churches and Christians evidently that don't understand it. That last Wednesday morning, God was not in heaven wringing His hands trying to figure out what to do now. Okay? That's not God. Okay? The world's not in chaos from His vantage point. There's a lot of sin. But when we trust God, you know how we live? We live with this sense of contentment 
and peace and rest even while we're attacking problems and seeking solutions to things. That's the way man, kind of man Paul was. You see, trust is connected to submission. You'll submit to whom you trust. Paul lived his life in trust of God's sovereignty. Take a little journey for a moment to Philippians 4, verses 10 and following. Paul writes more directly about the subject of contentment. He says some astounding things here in Philippians 4. And, uh, you know, in verse 10, he reminds them and says something about this offering that they gave to him. And just so you'll know, these believers were very poor. But yet they wanted so much to participate in Paul's mission work and his ministry. And they just never seemed to have the opportunity to be able to give him any money. So he says in verse 10, I I rejoice that now at last you've, you've revived your concern for me. What he's talking about is money. They've given him some money. Don't read this wrong. He's not saying, I rejoice that now, at last, you finally contributed. He's not saying that. It's about time that you finally gave some money to my ministry. No, he was rejoicing because, for their sake, he was just so happy that they were now filled with joy that he was, they were participating in his ministry. So he wants them to understand that it's not that I have want, verse 11, I'm not speaking from one here. I'm not concerned that God, how God's going to take care of me this week or next week in the future. God's going to take care of me. In fact, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Look down at verse 12. Right in the middle it says, I have learned. Same words in English, at least the translation I'm reading. They're not the same words in Greek. The first learned and the second learned are two different Greek words. The first learn means I've acquired some knowledge by my experience in life. The second learned is a Greek word that means I've gone through an initiation like joining a club of some sort. I've gone through an initiation into this club called contentment, the contentment club. Now, even though the two Greek words are different, they essentially go together to say the same thing. Paul says, I wasn't born... With contentment. God has taught me contentment. I've learned it. I've been initiated into it. You know what he, how he learned it? You know what the initiation rites were? Trials. God took him through trial after trial after trial after trial. And the, the end result of that was he learned something very, very important. It's how to live your life contented. Trials 101, that's what he majored in. First class he took in college. Trials. That is the Christian life. We've either just come through a trial or we're in a trial or we're about to be a trial. That's it. Paul experienced that. He says, here's what I learned. God didn't sprinkle contentment and wiffle dust on me. I learned it. I learned... To be content in whatever circumstances I am. And you know verse 12, it's this pendulum sort of verse where the pendulum swings back and forth. Where he says, I I know how to get along. In other words, be content. I can be happy. I know how to get along. Let's read some other things into it. I don't fret. I'm not worrying. I'm not anxious. I'm not fearful. In times of humble means. Paul experienced times of very humble means where he didn't know what was going to happen next. 
I also have learned how to live in prosperity. And we think, I'd like to learn that one. I, 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 Lord, I need to learn that lesson. Send me through that trial for a while. Pill and swings. In any and every circumstance, notice he didn't say, now I prefer the second one over the first one. He didn't say, I prefer any of this over the others. didn't matter. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and the secret of going hungry. Lord, you know that secret of going hungry? It's okay for you to keep that secret to yourself. Let that be Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Um, Keep that secret. But Lord, I would like to learn the secret of being filled. Paul says, I've learned the secret of both. There's a secret to being filled and there's a secret of how to go hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. I am content no matter what the issues are going on in my life, whatever's going around me in the world. It doesn't matter. I'm a contented man. Listen, you can't say that unless you really do believe in the sovereignty of God. That God's in control. That He's who He says He is. But when you do, you're willing to say, I'm going to do this and do this and do this. And I mean, you can do all that and say all that and be so hyper in those things that, boy, you're hard to live with because of that. I mean, you're just not a, living in the real world or something. But you can say all that and say, if the Lord wills. Whatever he wants. I'm fine with it. You're contented. So let me tell you what the keys are to contentment here out of this passage. I'll tell you what they are. You want to be content? Then first of all, understand God's process. Understand God's process. How are you going to learn contentment? He's going to bring you through trials. Well, isn't there another way, Lord? I mean, can't we have a Bible institute at our church and maybe teach a course on contentment? I think I'd rather do some homework and some stuff like that. Understand God's process, how He's going to teach you contentment. He's going to bring you through trials. Second, embrace God's will. Understand God's process and embrace God's will. Whichever it is on the pendulum swing for your life, embrace it. Do you know embrace is a much stronger term than a word like this? Cope. Notice I didn't say key number two is cope with God's will. I didn't even say key number two is Accept God's will. That's still a little bit too passive. Embrace God's will. Whatever He brings in your world, in your life, is what's best for His glory and best for you to make you more like Christ. Paul embraced it. Third, you want to be content? Depend on God's strength. You can't do this on your own. That's what verse 13 is saying. I can do all things through Him and strengthens me. And I mean, in a church like yours, with the teaching you get, you know how important hermeneutics is that you have to let context determine the meaning of a verse. And I mean, people, this is one of those verses that people pull out and use for all kinds of things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, there's some things I can't do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I waited for years, 16 years in California, and the Lakers never called me to be, never to be their starting center. I mean, I can name that and claim that all I want to. And they're not going to call. It's hard to believe. I mean, looking at me, you'd think they would have called. I can't do all things in that sense. You know what the all things are he's talking about? Verse 11 and 12. I can do these all things. I can live in any circumstance. That whole issue of concern. Paul cared more about them than he did himself. 
He wanted them to give the money, but not for him. He wanted what it was going to do for them. You want to be content? Imitate God's love for others. You want to be miserable and discontent? Be self-focused and care about your own world and your own problems and your own fears and your own anxieties. The most miserable people in the world are those who are focused on themselves. Imitate God's love for others. Well, back in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, he says, I'm going to come if, if the Lord wills. That tells me something about leadership. A leader is not self-willed. I've been talking to you some about being determined. Please don't misunderstand this. Showing determination is not the same thing as being stubborn. There's a difference. Showing determination is not the same thing as being stubborn. A true spiritual leader is courageous and determined, but he's living life conscious of the fact that God's in control. Ultimately, what God does is what matters. What His will is is what matters. So you submit to the Lord. You trust in the Lord. Spiritually minded person, always willing to allow God to edit their plans. And with that is the sense of contentment, a trust that whatever God does is what's best, as opposed to what the opposite is. And this is not good leadership. When things don't go your way, if your wife doesn't act the way she ought to act, your children don't act the way they ought to act, or I as a pastor I have to say it this way, if the people in the church don't do what I think they ought to do, or any and all of those in my life, if we become irritated, frustrated, angry. That's a person who's not necessarily exemplifying determination and a sense of duty and decision-making and initiative. That's a sign of stubbornness. And now my way is not being followed. I'm not getting my way, and I'm not happy. I'm irritated, frustrated. Some leaders are this way. So what do they do? They force their ideas on people. I'm going to make my plan and I'm going to bring it to pass no matter what. I've made my plans. We're going to go this place on vacation. We're going to leave at 7.52 on Saturday morning. I've got it all mapped out. We're going to stop at 8.37 to buy gas. We're going to then at 10.51 stop for a rest break for exactly three and a half minutes. And boy, the family's got to have a great vacation, don't they? Yeah, so much fun to be with Dad. Listen, that sometimes is just stubbornness. That's not leadership. That's stubbornness. And when people or circumstances oppose the plans, you get discouraged. Paul is not saying, I'm going to come to you, and if this doesn't work out, man, I'm going to be upset. That's the Lord wills. A leader cannot be one who is continually what we call under the circumstances. A leader cannot be someone who's continually depressed over challenges and difficulties and plans not working out. A leader cannot be somebody who's moping around and focused on how terrible things are. A leader is not someone who's living in the worst case scenario that they imagine in their mind. There's plenty of people who do that. Listen, the world needs somebody else. And you know what? That kind of person is such a burden on others. A depressed husband, a depressed father, 
you know, is such a burden on the wife and the children or a secretary or co-workers. A leader needs to be an example of joy. Joy. Do you know that when you're confident and you're trusting the Lord and you're content and you know He's sovereign, there's a sense of joy that exudes from you. And I guarantee you, joy is engaging. People want to follow other people that have joy. Why? Because they're struggling with looking around what's going on. Read the papers, watch the news. I mean, struggling with having joy. I think people are desperate for leaders who are aggressive, but who are content and and not worried and not fearful and not fretting, but having joy. So husbands and fathers, we have to ask ourselves, are we known as those who are determined yet also content? Or are we characterized when things aren't going the way we want? Are we characterized with a spirit of irritability when our plans don't work out? And our wives and our children are kind of having to walk on eggshells around us or handle us with kid gloves until we get over it. Do we stubbornly force our plans into being no matter what others tell us and advise us, no matter what else is going on around us? You know, I think probably the greatest lesson we can leave our children is the lesson that God is sovereign and we can trust Him and He's in control and He's a good God. What a great lesson to leave to your children. Well... Like I said, trusting God is extremely important doctrine. I'm convinced as Christians we barely scratch the surface of what it means to trust God in our lives. But it's so crucial in the Christian life. And we need to model this. So determine in your own heart that you're going you're gonna to be a man who's going to live strategically. I'm not going to just float through this life. Don't be, don't be men who are in a, who are in a parade. Be men who are runners in a race. You take a totally different approach if you're in a parade or in a race. If you're in a parade, just meander along. No plans, no dreams, no ideas, no... Constantly punting to your wife and deals with problems. And That's a parade. But a race, you, you, you run the race with a goal and, and you plan. You, you have objectives. You don't just float through life. You, have, you live strategically in your personal life, in your marriage, your family, your ministry, your finances, your career, your hobbies, whatever. I'd encourage you to do what I do sometimes, what others do. Periodically, every three months, six months, at least once a year, do some personal strategic planning. Get a notepad in your Bible and go to sit in a park somewhere alone and and pray the Lord and, and read His Word and then just do some honest evaluation of your life. How am I doing? What are my weaknesses? And what are some biblical principles that apply to these things? And what are some practical steps I can take to grow? Sometimes we can't, especially if we identify, if we're honest, several weaknesses. We can't necessarily work all, all of them at one time. You can get overwhelmed. So what do you do? Pick one. Maybe two. Set a goal. Next three months, next six months, here's what's going to happen in my life. I'm going to work on this. Just maybe one thing I can wrap my arm around, and when I kind of build a habit of that one, I'll go into the second one on my list. But I'll set some goals. I'll put some practical steps. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray that the Lord will help me with this. I'll seek some accountability if that's what I need. I'll study on the subject if that's what I need. And Lord, with your help, I'm going to be resolved personally. I'm going to be committed to persevere, depending on your strength. So live strategically as a man. The other side of that coin is live realistically. 
live realistically. Some of your plans aren't going to work out. But God is sovereign. The divine editor will do his job. Be very careful about your expectations about things. Sometimes plans have to be altered. I think one of the greatest, most encouraging things my former pastor ever said to me, especially when I first came on staff of that church, I was a bit intimidated by that. And uh, literally, when I was asked to come on staff, my wife and I went and met with the senior associate pastor at that time, position that I didn't know that someday I would actually be in. But at that time, he offered me this job and went home and told my wife, you're not going to believe this, but they don't know what they're doing up there, but they're trying to hire me. And so we were so disturbed over that that we made an appointment with him to go sit down with him and let him know you're making a terrible mistake. You don't, you don't understand who we are. We are these nobodies from Podunk, Texas. And you need somebody far more gifted and, and able to serve in a place like this. And, and I, I remember we wept, literally wept in his office. And uh, appreciate the offer, but that, that's not something that we'd be able to do. And I'll never forget this. He, he told me, that's, you're exactly then what I'm looking for. But I was still intimidated, came on staff, tried to stay under the radar as much as I could because I hated to make a mistake. But I remember one day in a staff meeting, a whole group of us, and John, I don't even think, knew my name really. But nevertheless, he was talking about leadership one time, talking about decision making. He said, I'll tell you something, guys. A leader is somebody who makes a good second decision. And what he meant by that was we do have to be decisive. We have to take the data we have and we have to make a decision. We can't, we can't go forever. We'll frustrate everybody around us. But sometimes after we make our decision, we get some more data. Maybe three months down the road, we understand it better. He says a leader is somebody who makes a, then a really good second decision. And boy, I was so comforted by that, that sometimes I could make some decisions that maybe weren't so good, but I'd learn from them and I'd make a better second one. So live strategically, but live realistically. Seek the Lord's wisdom and help, but take it seriously. Don't just float through life. You want to be a manly man. Like I told you at the very beginning, I think what impressed me about this passage was not just the fact that he was wrapping up his confronting their arrogance. I mean, that's what he's doing and all the problems. But it's how he went about doing it. What a model. And I want, to, I want to manifest these four characteristics and many others, but certainly these four in my own life. And it's something I had to keep coming back to again and again and again. How am I doing a concern? Have I become self-focused? Do I really view people the wrong way? Do I really care about my children and my wife? What about my character? Are there some gaps in my life that I'm not taking seriously like I should? What about my courage? Am I willing to make decisions and to go forward and do what's right because it's right to do regardless of what people think? But do I really trust the sovereignty of God? I mean, I teach it. I think the doctrines of God's sovereignty are life-changing, but do I really live by it? Or are we practical atheists sometimes? We, we talk about God and yet live our lives as if we're going to have to do things on our own, fix things. I have to keep coming back to him with the Lord's help, seeking to model these characteristics. Let me pray for all of us. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul. Lord, what a, what a gift to the church. Your sovereign will that crashed into his life on that road to Damascus and took a Christ-hater and turned him into a Christ-lover.
who passionately came to treasure the Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for the testimony of his life. Thank you for giving us that story. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for inspiring him to write. I thank you for the great doctrines we've learned from him, but I thank you also for the example of his life and what he modeled for us. Help us as men men to be manly, to act like men, to be the kind of men that people in our church and our families are turning to for guidance and for leadership. Lord, build that in us. In our Savior's name, amen.